You're listening to Law, Life, and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Thank you very much, Harry Droz and Paul Bass. I am thrilled to have as our guest, Guardian columnist George Monbiot. The New Left Review recently called him probably Britain's best known environmental journalist, but he's written his job is to tell people what they don't want to hear. He's joining us today from Devon, England. Mr. Monbiot, welcome to Law, Life and Culture. Thank you very much, Betsy. It's great to talk to you. Well, George Mabio began his career as a wildlife radio producer with the BBC and has authored a dozen books, including most recently, this one, Regenerate, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, which we'll be talking about today. So there are many videos already online. If you Google George Monbiot, M-O-N-B-I-O-T, this includes his TED Talk from January 2023, which I've posted on Twitter at Betsy Kim. And it's also on George's Twitter feed at George Monbiot. And I don't want to retread too much of what's already out there, but to give us some context, George, can you give a quick summary of three or four of the main points of Regenesis that you'd want most for our audience to know? Thanks, Betsy. Yes, so we are facing a systemic crisis in food, and I don't think one in a thousand people have really grasped what we're looking at here. It's not just a few issues like Russia's invasion of Ukraine or the um, COVID pandemic. It's actually a systemic crisis very similar to the crisis approaching 2008 with the financial system. And in fact, a lot of the dysfunctions in the food system mirror those of the financial system then. A few very large corporations with tremendous control, the standardization of the system everywhere, the same corporate strategies being pursued everywhere, regulations being ripped down. And this streamlining and efficiency of the system on behalf of big corporations actually makes it less resilient. It it might be a good strategy for the individual corporation, but for the system as a whole, it loses its resilience and then shocks can be more easily transmitted across it. Now, the global food system, just like the global financial system, is a complex system. It's got tipping points. And what that means is that if you pass a tipping point, a critical threshold, it can collapse from one equilibrium state into a different one, which means basically it just crashes, it falls apart. Now, when the global financial system was in that state and just about to collapse and governments literally had a few hours to act, they were able to bail out that system with future money. But you can't bail out the food system with future food. So we're looking at potentially a really massive global crisis, a crisis of on a scale we haven't seen before, which has been warned about in the scientific literature for 10 or 12 years. They've been saying this system's losing its resilience, it's looking worse every year, shocks are being more easily transmitted across it, um, there's more and more problems stacking up, and no government has taken those warnings seriously. In fact, they've scarcely featured at all in public life. So that's issue number one. We've got this systemic frailty. We need urgently to do something about it. And I suggest some of the ways we can do that. Issue number two is that the food system is more than any other part of our human economy driving earth systems 
themselves towards the brink. Now, you know, we, we don't like to think about this because we all need to eat. We all need the food system. We all need farming. Um, and we, 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 we don't want to um, apply the same standards to food and its production as we apply to any other industry. But the harsh truth is that food production is the number one cause of deforestation, of habitat destruction, of wildlife loss, of species extinction, of freshwater use, of soil degradation, and of land use. And it's one of the leading causes of climate breakdown, of water pollution, and of air pollution. So it's right up there at the top of the list. And unless we deal with these dysfunctions, even if we sort out every other damaging thing that we're doing to our beautiful planet, we will still push it over the brink. We will still destroy our life support systems solely through the way that we produce our food. And there's a particular aspect of food production. And this is even harder for some people to hear. And I'm sorry, but yeah, telling people what they don't want to hear, as you so rightly said, that is my job. Um, the, the aspect of food production, which is by a very, very long way, the most damaging and is sufficient by itself to drive some really catastrophic environmental shifts is livestock farming, the farming of animals for meat, milk, eggs and, and the rest. And, um, and, and this is you know, up there with fossil fuel production. You know, there are two things above all others we need to do to um, protect and restore the living planet. One is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. The other is to stop farming animals. And while there's now some discussion about leaving fossil fuels in the ground, there's very little discussion about stopping farming animals. And so what I look at is the scale of these crises and then the quite exciting ways in which we, we, we can grapple with them and I believe solve them and produce outcomes which are really better for everyone you know healthier food cheaper food food which which is um much more attuned to our survival on this planet plus a much more thriving living planet than we have at the moment you know one thing that i found very eye-opening about your book was what you mentioned um how environmentally destructive pasture um, organic pasture fed farming truly is. I mean, I would have imagined that transportation or manufacturing were the major culprits. Yeah. Your book points out the worldwide devastation with deforestation for farming, particularly is with the rainforest for um, beef from Brazil. Mm. Can you comment on this? Yeah, sure. So, so we have got this so wrong. There's a big drive now by celebrity chefs and food writers and even some environmentalists to say you should be eating pasture fed beef, grass fed beef. That's the best thing to eat. This is the most destructive of all food products. It is driving destruction faster and further than anything else. Now, there's the issue of, of current destruction, not just in Brazil, in Ecuador, in Madagascar, in, in Myanmar, in many parts of the world. Um, uh, beef farming in particular, the ranching of beef, is the leading cause of, of deforestation. Um, and, and in some other places, sheep farming as well. So, um, so, so you've, you, you've got the, the, the current destruction, but you've also got this embedded destruction in, in the farming that we're already doing, the ranching of, of, of beef and sheep of cattle and sheep, which is already happening around the world, which has got a massive 
ecological opportunity cost and carbon opportunity cost, which in other words, is what it prevents from happening. It prevents the restoration of, of habitats on a massive scale. It prevents the drawing down of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere on a massive scale. And what this comes down to, the crucial issue is land use. And this issue should be at the top of the environmental agenda. It's one of the absolutely top environmental issues. And yet the only times we discuss it is when we're talking about urban land use. We talk about urban sprawl and we're quite right to do so. Urban sprawl is a blight. Um, it's bad for cities and it's bad for the countryside. But the entire urban area of the planet is just 1% of its land surface. All the homes, all the businesses, all the infrastructure, 1% of the land surface. Farming occupies 38%. But what farming are we talking about? Well, 12% of the land surface is under crops, of which almost half is crops being produced to, to feed to livestock rather than directly to humans. 26% of the planet, more than all other human land uses put together, and then some, is, is used for, for the ranching of cat, primarily of cattle and sheep. This is a phenomenally profligate use of our most precious resource, which is land. And every hectare of that land that we use to produce that pasture-fed meat, which is so fetishized by, by food writers, is a hectare which isn't available for wild habitats, be they rainforests, be they natural grasslands, be they savannas, be they wetlands. These are the habitats on which the great majority of terrestrial life forms depend. And without those habitats, well, we're heading towards the sixth great extinction. Now, there was a very interesting study conducted in the United States, which said, what if we did what the food writers tell us to do? and switch from corn-fed beef, which we all agree is bad enough in intensive feedlocks, if we were to switch from that to pasture-fed beef, like, like they say. And they found that you would need 270% more land to produce cattle in the United States. And what that means is that you would have to cut down all the forests, drain all the wetlands, water all the deserts, degazette all the national parks, demolish all the cities, and you would still be uh, still be importing a lot of your beef from Brazil. It's just not sustainable. And what we see here, and it's a classic example, that of is people doing the pictures but not the numbers. They say, "Oh, that looks nice. I like the look of that. So that's what we want." And I eat it, and I like it. So everyone should do it. But they don't see that it can't scale because the numbers are against it. Now, if we had several planets and no space for wild ecosystems on any of them, then we could all eat pasture-fed beef. But because we don't, we can't. You do point to a solution to this problem though with precision fermentation. Can mm. you talk a little bit about that? Yes, so I, I, I find lots of ways of making myself unpopular, not on purpose, but because I'm trying to think my way through this, you know, following the evidence, going from first principles, seeing what we can best do about these existential crises. And of course, you know, farming is just one of them, but it is a really, really huge part of it. And this leads me to, I suppose, the shocking conclusion that we have pushed multicellular organisms, plants and animals, to the absolute limit of what we can extract from them. In the case of some species like chickens, I think we've passed them way, pushed them way beyond the limit. You know, the way we treat them is just atrocious. The way we treat pigs is atrocious. If we treated our dogs and cats like that, we would literally be sent to prison 
but it's just totally normal for us to treat these poor animals in in in, in this really really shocking way and, and we're doing that we, we're, we're treating them so badly because we're trying to squeeze a tiny bit more efficiency out of them produce a little more with a little less but we've really hit the limits there but we've scarcely begun to explore the potential of single-celled organisms, microorganisms. And these are phenomenally productive. I mean, this isn't alien to our diets. We eat microorganisms with every meal. That Our food is full of them. We deliberately introduce them to, to, to certain food, like um, um, bread and cheese and yogurt and kimchi and sauerkraut, for example. Um, but... Um, but what if we were to look at microorganisms as a food source in their own right? Well, what you find immediately is that you can produce much, much more with much, much less. So, for instance, there was a study looking at um, um, methanol consuming bacteria and, and, and there's some all, amazing, incredible bacteria species which can do really staggering things. And some eat hydrogen, some, some eat methanol. Um, and and so you don't need any agricultural products to 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 produce them, and you can absolutely shrink to a dot the resources required to 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 grow them. And so this study said, um, how much land would we need to produce um, um, protein by by this methanol um, uh, eating bacteria route, rather than through the most efficient way? of producing protein on earth today, which is soy grown in the US. And they found they would need 1700 times less land. And that means, wait for it, 132,000 times less land than for beef to produce the same amount of protein. And so my estimates, depending on the energy source, but with certain energy sources, if you were to use those, are that you could, if you wanted to, and I'm not suggesting we do, but you could produce all the world's protein on an area the size of Greater London, the city of London in, 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 in the UK, all the world's protein could be produced that way. Now, you know, what I'd like to see is a distributed and highly diverse um, set of ways of, 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 of taking advantage of these incredible organisms. Um, but it's amazingly efficient. You shrink the land footprint, you shrink the water footprint, you shrink the fertilizer footprint. And what that would then, would then enable you to do is to release huge tracts of the planet for ecological restoration, for rewilding. And then you could stop the sixth great extinction in its tracks. You could bring back missing ecosystems and you could draw down much of the carbon dioxide we've already released into the atmosphere. Now, can you describe this precision fermentation a little bit more? Because I've seen pictures on your Twitter feed, for example, mm. that the precision fermentation results in steak like uh, food. It's not as if people are eating a bowl or a vat of yeah. bacteria. Yeah. It actually looks, and what you've reported, it has a texture and the taste also of steak. So can you describe more? I think some people might be familiar with Impossible Foods and the heme mm. product um, that yeah. makes uh, hamburgers look like yeah 
food. Can you explain that a little bit more so people don't think they're eating one cellular sure. organisms? Sure. You know, so 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 we've we've been experimenting with fermentation for thousands of years, of course, and 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 we've refined that and done all sorts of amazing things with it. You know, we m- many of our most interesting foods and drinks um come, come from fermentation. Um and um, and but this precision fermentation is is about sort of refining it so that you are producing very specific products from particular organisms instead of having this quite broad spectrum of organisms as 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 you do in a lot of the traditional products we make you have you have a more precise one and you d- sort of deliberately create protein rich foods with particular protein profiles and then you can turn those into almost anything and you can do so far more easily then you can with plant proteins. Now, the, the problem with plant proteins is that they're fairly low concentrations. They're very different from the profile of animal proteins, and they're all tangled up with secondary metabolites, which are co- compounds, chemicals, which taste pretty strong. And so it's hard to make realistic substitutes for animal products with them. But microbial proteins are, can be a lot closer to the profile of animal proteins they, they can be at a much higher concentration um, and, and they're not tangled up with those secondary metabolites. So there's much less processing required. You're much closer to your final product from, from the outset. So um, I went to, um, uh, to visit one of these companies in, in 2019, the first of them I visited called Solar Foods in Helsinki, which was producing a flour made from bacteria which eat hydrogen. It's a really compact and and simple process. Um, these, these hydrogen metabolizing bacteria using hydrogen much in the same way that plants use sunlight, but much much more efficiently than photosynthesis. And and what comes out at the end is is a flower which is is sort of bright gold in color because these bacteria have beta carotene in, and is about sixty five percent protein. Now I asked the laboratory, could you make me a pancake out of this? flour because I wanted to be the first person on earth to eat a pancake made of this bacterial flour and they said we will but we want to test it first so you're not going to be the first person but you will be the first person outside the laboratory so my vanity was slightly dented but not completely and so and and so to make the pancake we had to dilute this flour with with wheat flour because because normally if you make a western european style pancake you know you start with wheat flour and, and wheat flour is only sort of 12 to 14% protein. So you have to add protein and fat to make a, a satisfying pancake. So you add eggs and you add milk. But in this case, when you're starting with 65% protein, if you just tried to make it out of that, you would make an omelette. I mean, you, literally it would be just, in fact, it already smelt like eggs. So it would be very similar to an omelette. So we had to take the protein content down by mixing it with wheat flour. And then you just need water. And, and they made me a pancake, which was uncannily like a pancake. I mean, it was just, it was, it was to say, I, there's no way I could have picked it out in a blind tasting. And that's without any change at all to the product. That's just with the straight flour coming out the end of it. So it was a, it was a small flip for man. <laughs> but anyway, but, but, but obviously it's not just pancakes. You can make a huge range of products this way, very cheaply, very easily initially substitutes for animal products but then the sky's the limit you know because this is an incredible flexible form of food production and just as the first 
people to capture a wild cow weren't thinking about camembert, we have no idea what products might come out of this. But there is a lot of fear of people tinkering um, in a genetic level or at the cellular level mm -hmm. of what people deem as unnatural. So how do we get people to psychologically overcome this fear of science creating, mm -hmm. you know, quote, Frankenfood? And mm -hmm. how do you psychologically get people to accept steak created from a bacteria just yeah. as they accept cheese? Sure. So, I mean, we, we've been tinkering at the genetic level with multicellular organisms now for about 12,000 years and produce some right horrors as a result. You know, the absolute horrors of the way we, we farm and kill and process um, the animals that we, 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 we produce. I mean, it's just it's, it's if we were to start from that, if it were the other way around. And we already were producing our food from from microbes. And I would have come along and said, no, 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 let's let's do something else instead. Let's let's domesticate this wild cow and the wild boar and the jungle fowl and this woolly ruminant in Mesopotamia. And we'll we'll radically change their characteristics and we'll we'll castrate them and tusk them and horn them and do all these things without anesthetic. And we'll push them together in massive sheds and keep them in horrendous sensory deprivation. And then we'll take them to a different factory and we'll stun them and we'll cut their throats and we'll skin them and we'll chop them up. People will be absolutely horrified. And then if I introduce the issue of cheese, just imagine, they say, right, okay, so there are these secretions, right, which, which the female cow produces from her udders, these mammary secretions. It's like human milk, but it comes from, from a cow, from this wild animal. And if you mix those with a chemical um, produced from the fourth stomach of a nursing calf, they will turn into a wobbly mass of fat and protein. And then into that, you introduce particular live bacteria and they digest that wobbly mass of, of fat and protein. And then you let it sit till it gets hard and yellow and stinky, which basically the excrements of those bacteria. And then you eat it. <laughs> Can you imagine what people would say? They'd be absolutely horrified. So what I'm proposing is actually far less disgusting, far less outrageous than the way we produce our food today. Um, and of course, getting people to see it that way, I mean, you know, it, there are some hurdles to overcome, you know, and I understand the reluctance, I understand the barriers, but you know, we have to step back a little bit from this and say, look at how we're doing it right now. Do you think this is a great way to produce our food, killing 76 billion animals a year and rising all the time to feed ourselves with these massive environmental impacts this really sort of unhealthy incredibly unhealthy system at enormous planetary cost no this is a really really stupid way to feed us once we've got an alternative and now we have an alternative you're listening to George Monbio on WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven Connecticut so George, about the public relations with um, making precision fermentation more widely adopted, do you think companies need to be giving out free samples and that the government needs to perhaps uh, support this kind of um, industry or what could be done realistically to speed up the adoption and technology of this product? 
Well, first, they need to be approved, and that does need a proper testing process. And none of nothing, no new food should ever be released onto the market unless we know it's safe. We, we know there aren't any unresolved issues. So that has to be done properly. But some countries are better at making that happen than others. Singapore is the world leader in, in getting a, a fast, effective, but safe regulatory process in, in place. Uh, US is doing pretty well. Europe and the UK are doing really badly. Um, we're just not efficient about these things. Um, it takes a very long time. It gets snarled up in bureaucracy. Um, and so, um, so governments can support it by making sure that it's properly regulated. You know, that there's no corners to be cut. There's absolutely, you know, we must look at this as rigorously as as any other food stuff, but at the same time, no unnecessary obstacles erected. So, you know, it's got to be proportionate. We've got to do it properly. Um, but having done that, um, then, yeah, we, you know, what we need, I think, is, 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 is more research and development to get a wider range of products going quickly. It's at the moment, you know, it's being left to private capital to do this. There's Dangers in that, in that you know, private capital often isn't very patient. Um, government funding can look at look to the longer term, but also, you know, we don't want the same thing to happen to the new food economy as has happened to the old food economy. The old food economy is an absolute disaster zone when it comes to corporate control. We've got four corporations controlling 90% of the global grain trade. It's an absolute catastrophe. That's one of the things which makes the food system so fragile. Right. And but the answer there is not to ban the grain trade, because if you did that, billions of people would immediately starve. It's, it's to break up those corporations. And we need the same thing in the new food economy. You know, we, we intellectual property rights should be weak and antitrust laws should be strong. And that should be the same in every aspect of the economy. And this the new food economy gives us an opportunity to break the stranglehold of existing corporations. But if governments get this wrong, it could enhance the stranglehold of existing corporations. So I think a role for, for people like you and me is to come in at this early stage and say, let's get this right. Let's not replicate all the stupidities of the existing system. Let's use this opportunity to diversify the system, diversify it in terms of our production, diversify it in terms of who's doing the producing. Now, I've cut down on my meat consumption. I've bought meatless meat and plastic made out of cornstarch products, thinking these are biodegradable, and at least I won't be contributing to that mega disgusting, huge plastic garbage island that's floating out there on the Pacific Ocean. But I learned from your book that actually these plant plastics are in many ways worse for the environment in using land to grow these materials to make these products. So what should I do as a daily consumer to mm. help make a difference. Sure. So, so the first thing is just to consume less of everything. You know, we should just try to cut down. And, you know, whether you think of yourself as a green consumer or an ordinary consumer, you know, you, you almost certainly, I mean, I don't know anything about your consumption, but almost all of us in these rich nations are just consuming too much. And to the greatest extent possible, we just consume less of everything. When it comes to food, there is a real difference you can make, which is to switch away from eating animal products, because these are so disproportionately damaging to, to the living world. 
um, and, and indeed to our own chances of survival. You know, it's hard to see how we can get through the 21st century if we carry on eating as, as we are. Um, but primarily, you know, we should act as citizens rather than consumers. We've been told again and again, you are consumers. Think of yourself as a consumer. And as a consumer, we're generally pretty weak. You know, there are some things we can do. And that shift in our diets is the biggest thing of all in any field that we can do to improve our environmental impact as consumers. But you know, our power is pretty limited. We have to change the political systems as well. We have to change the economic systems as well. And for that to happen, we have to get together and create political movements. That's what our ancestors have done repeatedly. You know, that's where all our freedoms come from. We wouldn't be able to vote. We, we wouldn't be able to talk freely to each other like this if it weren't for those political actions of our ancestors. And so we must build on that and we must constantly demand a better world and and what I try to do in my work is to say look here are some ideas for this better world we could demand but you know just by putting the ideas out there it doesn't change anything but it's one part of the jigsaw you know any effective movement is an ecosystem lots of different people bringing their different skills in working together cooperating to create these better systems Connecticut is an interesting state because it's highly impacted by climate change with rising sea levels and increasing storm activity and coastal flooding. And Superstorm Sandy showed the very real threat throughout New England that was posing dangers to industries, including hospitals. But Connecticut also has over 5,000 farms spread across um, th over 380,000 acres, and uh, it Agriculture contributes approximately $4 billion to the state's annual economy, mm. employs 22,000 people in jobs. Mm. So how could a transition occur to shift to a healthier, more diverse agricultural industry, including with practices with some of the farmers you featured, such as Tali mm. and Tim, who did things like rotating crops and planting perennials and allowing mm. land to remain fallow? Yeah. How do you imagine these methods could replace or even influence current global farming practices, including here in Connecticut? Well, the first thing to say is that the U.S., to a greater extent than any other nation, feeds the world. If it were not for the United States, the world would be a much hungrier place. We, the, the, when you look at the major agricultural commodities, it, it, it's up there. The U.S. is up there in as one of the principal producers of just about all of them. It's quite remarkable how how important it is as a global producer. So it's really important, not just to the people of Connecticut, not just to the people of the United States, but to the people of the world that the U.S. gets this right and can continue to produce food well into the future. You know, we, we all need that to happen right where you are. And and there are some very exciting um, possibilities for just doing things better. But before I talk about one of them, can, can I just say that um, it's it's really important that we try to keep yields high. You know, if, if, if crop yields fall, that means we have to use more land to produce the same amount of food. But at the same time, we should keep impacts as low as, as we possibly can. So you know, how do we keep those yields high with less pesticide, less herbicide, less fertilizer, less damage to the soil, less irrigation water. You know, th these, these are the questions that we should all be asking because we need the crops, but we, we need less damage associated with them. Now, one really exciting 
um, possibility, and it, in fact, is more than a possibility. It's actually happening now. It's something that scientists have been talking about for a century. It's been a dream of science for about a century, and it hasn't happened until now. And that is replacing the annual grain crops we grow with perennial crops. Now, almost all the grain we grow on Earth today comes from annual plants, which are plants which live and die within one year. And large areas covered by annual plants are pretty rare in nature. They, they, they generally only occur in the wake of a disaster, volcanic eruption, a landslide, a major fire, which clears the land, which kills all the vegetation. And annual plants are great pioneers. They colonize bare land. They're really good at it. And they spread very fast. They reproduce quickly, occupy the land as fast as they can before the perennial plants, the long lasting plants, come back in and crowd them out and take over the land again. So in order to grow our annual grain crops, and by grain, I mean all the cereal crops we grow, but also all the oil seeds and all the beans and peas and stuff, that, that all, all the small seeded crops we grow, to produce them, we have to create a disaster every year. We have to kill everything, either by spraying it off or by plowing the land. And then when the little seedlings are growing, we have to carry on killing everything. We, we kill the competing plants. We kill the bugs which might eat them. Um, and then we have to apply lots of fertilizer and lots of water in order to, to protect these little delicate seedlings as they start to come through. And we pamper them and pamper them and then they reach maturity and we harvest it and then we start the whole process all over again. So it's destruction, destruction, destruction every year. So what if we could replace those annual crops with perennial crops, which are plants you, you, you sow once and then for several years from a single sowing, they will continue to give you a harvest every year. Well, the leading group on this worldwide is, is the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. And together with various academic groups around the world, it's been scanning thousands of candidate species which could become perennial crops, whether in their own right or by cross-breeding with, with existing annual crops. And so far, they've had one total success, which is now fully commercialized, which is a variety of rice, which they developed um, in, in collaboration with the, um, the University of, of, of Yunnan in China. And, and they um, have managed to uh, produce this, this rice variety, which has stayed in the soil for several years now, producing the same harvest every year as the annual rice produces, but without having to uh, start all over again every year. And, and farmers there are really keen to get the seed. I mean, there's tens of thousands of hectares now being, being used to, to, to grow the, this rice, and, and farmers want to expand its production because for several reasons. One, it causes much less soil erosion. So you're not, um, by you because you don't have to plow every year, you're not hammering and hammering and hammering that soil. Two, it needs much less in the way of inputs like fertilizer and, and, and crop chemicals, because once it's established, it's much stronger and more, more robust and its roots go down much deeper. It needs less water, less fertilizer than the rest because it can draw up a lot more um, through through its much deeper roots. Um, but most importantly, perhaps there, because so many young people have left for the cities, it needs much less labour. You don't have to plant it every year. Um, you just harvest it. And, and so, so for, for all those reasons, farmers are really keen to buy it. But the other thing about perennial 
crops is that they tend to be far more robust and, and resilient. So for instance, the Land Institute is developing a strain of perennial sunflowers and it's grown them alongside uh, blocks of annual sunflowers. And I had a major drought one year. It completely wiped out the annual sunflowers, but the perennial sunflowers sailed through it. And it's not surprising because they got much deeper roots and much stronger structures above ground. And so they've got more environmental resilience. So for all these reasons, you know, you can greatly reduce the environmental damage, but you can increase their robustness at the same time. Once you've got the yields to the same level as, as the annual crops, and they have with the rice, and they're, they're heading in the right direction with a whole load of other crops, then you've got a really big environmental solution right there. Well, this conversation has made me feel very optimistic. I did call Atticus Bookstore on Chapel Street in New Haven, and they have two copies left of Resources <laughs> if people want to go up and pick up their copy. But please indulge me in my very last questions that has two parts, if I may ask them. Um, I saw on your Twitter feed um, a comment about atheism as you're defining our thoughts and experiences as within a contained physical system that ultimately and inevitably breaks down and ceases to exist. So mm -hmm. is that part of your environmental advocacy? Are you stressing that there's no better place or worse place than here on earth? I, I would I would say there's no better place. There's certainly a lot of worse places. I wouldn't like to be on Venus or Mars or in fact anywhere else at all. We're blessed with having an atmosphere, one G of gravity, uh, oxygen, all of these things, which an estate agent, a real real estate agent, would tell you, oh, these are pretty good things to have. You know. So um, um, I I find my wonder and my joy and my inspiration from the natural world here on Earth. I mean this. This precious planet is something so astonishing that no human mind could conceive it. It's, 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 it is beyond our, our ken. It's beyond our ability to, to imagine. And every year we find out more and more incredible things about it. Now, I believe myself this is all there is because I'm fascinated by complex systems and it's very hard to see how this interaction of complex systems called life can be sustained without all those things coming together. So, you know, what is the self? It's uh, this incredible mixture of mind and body and society and environment. It's all of these things coming together. If you cut off any one of those things, you lose that self and, and, and whatever, you know, if you think something survives us, it's not going to be the thing that we have and the thing that we are. And I know I'm again treading on very controversial territory here, but I just think we have the wonder around us. It's right here, right now. This is our revelation. This is our joy. This, this is our love surrounding us in this just mind-blowingly astonishing, wonderful, joyous planet that we inhabit. Those are very wonderful thoughts to take away, but I'm just wondering, is there a possibility, and indulge me by going beyond, yeah, anything is possible, Betsy, but that 
life is beyond the physical reality of biochemistry, that what we don't know, we can't explain in the finite system of our factual knowledge. So maybe there is a physical system of what I'm experiencing and it ends, but maybe there's something else that can still capture something about this physical system without my understanding exactly how, you know, like theoretically, if we move faster than the speed of light, we can go back in time. But by my experiences, that seems impossible. Hmm. Maybe as the universe is infinite, our imaginations are infinite, should possibilities of what might not make sense with our existing knowledge base be infinite too? Yeah, yeah, they could well be. I mean, you know, we know that we know a tiny, tiny fraction of what there is. And and we also know that that the world is too complex for the human brain to to encompass. We we and and there are mysteries, there are things we don't yet know. Now, it's my belief coming from a scientific empirical background that, you know, give it enough time and enough study and enough tools, we will learn a little more every year and we'll get a bit closer to unraveling some of these mysteries. We might um, even be, be, be able to reconcile some of the completely contradictory things we've been discovering about the world. Um, uh, but you could be right. You know, there could be more than science could ever describe. Uh, you know, I, I would hate to discount that possibility. As a matter of personal belief, I feel I have enough. It's here, it's now. This is where the wonder is. And the idea is to sustain the living planet as our center of faith, our, our center of, well, the thing that we want to keep going forever or for as close to ever as we can get. Well, thank you very much, George Mondio, for speaking with us today on WNHH 103.4. FM, Law, Life, and Culture. I'm Betsy Kim. Thanks so much, Betsy. Thank you.